Hey everybody, I'm Mike. And I'm James. And this is the Canadian Wargamer podcast. We're so happy you're with us for our fourth edition. And uh, if you will stand up uh, by your table, we will ask the band to play our regimental march. Yes, it's the Canadian Wargamer podcast featuring two affable and youngish granddads, Mike and James, talking about primarily miniature wargames and the occasional hex encounter excursion from Mike from our unique perspective in the Great White North. And as the strains of La Foy d'Arabla die away, here are your hosts, Mike and James. James, really, really happy to be with you uh, and our guest, who we'll introduce in just a second for our fourth podcast. Uh, our fourth podcast, you know, where I come from in the church, if you do something three times, it's considered a tradition. So I think we are now officially in the traditional zone. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Yeah, definitely. So uh, I, I don't know how we'll flesh out this tradition, funny hats or something. thought I would just share some statistics with uh, you and with our studio audience. We are at 528 all-time downloads. Wow. And, uh, that's pretty exciting. We have uh, 65 official followers. Um, so yeah i'm pretty pleased with uh, how this is going and we are now on uh apple so we're on uh, apple uh, itunes podcast something or other so if you get your podcast from apple uh please do you know what they all say subscribe uh leave us a review give us a rating say something so the algorithm likes us so yeah that's pretty exciting we're kind of excited that uh our third guest is uh a veteran of the wargaming scene for many, many years, uh, who now lives in the United States, but he's, we still think of him as a brother Canuck. James, do you want to introduce Don to us? Yes. Hi, Don. I mean, Hello. we've known each other for like 41 years. I did the math today. That's true. Yeah. So uh, why don't you start telling our enthralled audience about yourself, how you started as a wargamer? I started as a wargamer back uh, as a as a small child. My my dad was in the uh, Canadian Army, and uh, he was posted to London, England, with the uh, the tech staff over with the uh, High Commission, what other people would call an embassy. And while there, I remember um, uh, whenever he would have to go away for a trip, he'd come back and he'd give me some Airfix soldiers uh, as a as a present when he came back. So I got enthralled with that. Uh, and of course, dad being army meant everything army was just cool. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what got me into war gaming was uh, when I was seven, around 1972, 73, we, we came back to, to Canada. It, it was at that point that somebody had, had shown me that you could play a game with these toy soldiers that everybody had. Uh, and that's, that's really how I got into it. The first organized uh, war game I had was was uh, with some kids from the uh, army cadets that I was with, uh, uh, seventh or eighth grade, and that was like the first published set of rules that I ever uh, I ever worked through, and that was uh, that my introduction to gaming. 
So yeah, which, yeah. which rules were those, Don? Uh, those were uh, Operation Warboard by um, Gavin and his son Lyle. Uh, they were they were interesting because they were published as a uh, he was a novelist and they and they published it in, in the novel format and therefore I found it at W H Smith's um, huh. uh, in, in the you know looking through books and and there was this book on war games and I thought oh that's interesting but the last two chapters were, were effectively the war games rules. And so we we tried those. Hmm. Yeah, and so you're you're an army cadet like me, and that's how we met, wasn't it? Yeah, we we met at the Banff National Army Cadet Camp uh, in Banff, Alberta, in 1980. Yeah, your bunk was at one end of the barracks room, and mine was at the other. And uh, I seem to recall that they took us on a, a basically just a, a day trip to Calgary. That's right. Someone in our group said hey there's this cool was it you that that said hey there's this cool store called Sentry box west and we must go find it yeah that was me that was you so you yeah. you let charge yeah and so we found Sentry box west and i bought i bought an spi game and we ended up playing that on your barracks box yeah something like the uh like the salt on the Nipper river or something like that Orson pocket oh is hmm. that what it was okay there you go Oh, for goodness sake. So what year was this, guys? 1980. Yeah. 1980. So I, I used to shop at Sentry Box West when I was stationed out uh, in Alberta in the, the, the early teens, like 2010 to 2013. Oh, yeah. Uh, so it's a tank. Um, I don't remember a tank. They had um, a tank in the middle of the store when I was there. It was pretty no, cool. don't remember a tank. But um, yeah, it was. It, they had like a whole building to themselves, a couple of floors and... Uh, you know, I think the tank was actually not in front of, of Century Box West, but that was in front of some sort of um, surplus store that we also wanted to go see. That we, we did on the same trip. Oh, yeah. Okay. I just kind of, my, my memories put both stores together. Well, it is 41 years. <laughs> yeah, I'm old. I'm getting you like Travis Simpson. So you guys uh, both thought, you guys probably both had hair back then, eh? Um, yes. Yeah, I had a lot of hair. <laughs> Sorry, I couldn't resist. Yeah, uh, we, and we we bonded over this game, and we've just stayed friends ever since. We have, yeah. Um, um, I think James was a, a consummate letter writer. I lived in Ottawa, and he lived down uh, near London, and so uh, we started writing letters back and forth. And that's you, how we actually, are, you actually well, answered, answered back, which was pretty cool. Yeah, you know, pre-email, believe it or not. Yes, in the days before email, you had to write a letter. And put it in an envelope and stamp it. It was it was old school. Did you guys try to do any play by mail gaming? No, we hadn't. No, we didn't. no, nobody thought of that. But Don was Don was very um, very good at making long distance car trips. I remember during university. I guess once you're a second year cadet, you're at RMC, or because you went to art. Don went to Royal Military College. Um, and second year, you're allowed to have a car. Is uh, that no, it? Thir third year, uh, uh, first and second year, I was at Royal Roads in Victoria, British Columbia. Okay. And then third and fourth year, I was in Kingston, Ontario, at, at the Royal Military College. And it was third year that I finally, uh, uh, November of third year, I got a car. Uh, yeah, and you would you would jump in the car and drive and down and visit for the weekend. Yeah, that was great. Yeah. You uh, gave me this massive infusion of of 
your Airfix Napoleonics. I remember yeah, that's that. That's where they all went. Yeah, I ended, I ended up with a core's worth of French, Austrians, Prussians. It was pretty massive. And uh, it was sometime in the 90s that uh, you decided to publish a, a set of rules called Men at Arms. You had written it out uh, freehand, and I was helping you digitize it into the new thing called a computer. Oh, those things. Oh, I res they were just a passing fad. I resisted them. Well, the computer thing? Yeah, it's not going to catch on, but... No, no, it won't. No, nobody will... Uh listen to this conversation and download it and play it on small digital devices. I guarantee you. That's just crazy talk. Uh, You're talking science fiction. Yeah. Stick with clay tablets and, and stone knife. <laughs> Don, I'm just curious to take you back to your RMC days. Was there a, a gaming scene at RMC or, or were you guys all too busy? Uh, being we uh, should have been too busy, but of course I had to join the war game club and, and uh, almost failed out because I, I played way too many war games. <laughs> uh, uh, one of the things we did, we had a huge sand table uh, in, in the basement of one of the buildings uh, at RMC that uh, we cleared off all the sand and painted it green and, and played um, uh, Challenger 2, I think, uh, modern. Uh, and that actually got us some uh, recognition from the, uh, the current military staff who were there because we were actually doing... Um, uh, there was a, there was a book published by the Canadian military at the time called First Clash. Oh, by Kenneth McCarthy, I think. That's the one. Yep. Yeah, and, yeah. and it was a, a clash in the fictitious Third World War, the opening opening salvos between a Soviet motor rifle regiment and uh, the the Fourth Canadian Mechanized Brigade group in Germany. And right. so we we played out a lot of those sort of scenarios. And because it was current Canadians that uh, versus at the time current Russians, they were interested in seeing that. Right. So we gained some notoriety that way. So you could and, say you were doing professional military education. Right, which we absolutely were not. <laughs> <laughs> we were just goofing around and having fun. Right. And was that micro armor? Uh, yes, it was. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Tons of it. CNC yeah. and GHQ micro armor. Well, that was the that was the heyday of micro armor. It yeah. was, yeah. We could afford that as opposed to, uh, you know, real models, which they just didn't have the, uh, uh, the, the variety they have now. Yeah. About the same time I was playing uh, as an undergraduate at the University of Victoria with some Royal Roads uh, guys. Um, I think maybe in the same roles for all I know. And I had a small collection of um, heroics and Ra's British Army of the Rhine stuff. And uh, it, I found it exciting for the first 10 minutes, but after that, it got pretty tedious because you line <laughs> up your phalanx of T-62s and BNPs, and then most of them yep. would be vaporized almost immediately, right? Pretty yeah. close, yeah. Um, yeah. Now, what years were that, Mike? That would have been the early to mid-80s, like 83, 84. Well, I wasn't either. I was there at 83, 84. Oh, for goodness sake. Huh, I don't think yeah. I should have been there. You should have been there, yeah. Maybe. I was the first year. Maybe, uh, maybe I was too too young. Uh, they wouldn't let me out. It was a small world. Mm. Yeah, I started at Royal Roads in 1983, and in 1985, transferred over to RMC in Kingston. Yeah, I, I look at uh, the Team Yankee uh, write-ups today, and I think you know, is World War Three gaming any more fun? There's there's a there's an American guy called um, I can't remember his name, but he has a great blog called Sound Officers Call, which makes uh, World War Three gaming look um, pretty interesting. 
Um, but it's, you know, it's funny, like we're, we could come back to this later. I'm totally hijacked from the discussion, but it's funny how that's okay. You know, the cold war goes hot, um, period, like the late eighties is, uh, somehow just gotten, you know, really, really uh, sexy again. Right. It, it's considered like the classy or the classic, um, uh, cold war. Yeah. 1990s is, is too modern. Uh, and 1970s is too world war two ish. So right we uh, stick to the early 80s yeah and i think it's because it's guys our age who have you know retired from the military and you know they can now you know and now all these models are coming out and they're going wow i can build my unit yeah i served in that i went to all those reforger exercises and war game fighting the soviet hordes you know it, it, it it's like car guys our age now buy the car that they wanted when they're 16. So true. Gamers yeah. our age buy the army they wanted when they were 16. Right. I agree with that. That's true. Right. Yeah. And of course, all those games were based on the assumption that uh, either you were playing in the first two days um, of the war before it went nuclear or that somehow it wouldn't go nuclear and you could hopefully win, right? Yeah. Right. Because, yeah. Did you ever did you ever do tactical nukes on the tabletop, Don? Uh, no, no, never did. No, yeah. There were some SPI, Yeah, there were some SPI board games at the time, like Mech War, I think, where you could you could do that, but it wasn't much fun. Yeah. The very first time I, I went to uh, Gen Con, which was the uh, the science fiction fantasy role playing game convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, at that time in the eighties. Uh, was with Supremacy Games, which which was effectively a risk with the nuclear option, right? Uh, board game, and and uh, I volunteered for them for the for for that uh, convention. I and some friends from RMC. You go you go nuclear and you just uh, what set fire to the board? It'd probably be a better game if you did. Push push all your counters into the paper shredder. That's yeah. Right. Or just sweep it all off with a brim and dustpan like Jeffrey Palmer in Blackadder. You know where he's. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, we we sidetracked your gaming bio, Don. So where are we That's now? Okay. You're you're you're, you're graduated from RMC. You're a you're a handsome yep. young officer in Her Majesty's Canadian Armed Forces. That's true, and uh, and a publisher of of James's Men at Arms Rules. By uh, at that by the time we got to actually printing out some copies, we uh, I had left um, the regular army and went to the reserves. Uh, and had joined the 30th Field Artillery in Ottawa uh, as uh, as their um, regimental technical adjutant, uh, and uh, uh, joined uh, industry to do exactly the same job I had been doing in a green uniform, and did it in a gray suit instead, which was uh, Army software. Uh, but that gave me access to printers and photocopiers, and that, that's how we, we got the first uh, copies of Men-at-Arms, uh, 15 and 25 millimeter. That's right. Spiral bound, black and white, Yeah. cardstock cover. Oh. I think I still have a copy of it, because that's, that's what became Blood and Chivalry, right, James? Yes. Yeah. Yep. So uh, from there, uh, I, I took a left turn. I was in my uh, consulting job in downtown Ottawa. What the Americans would call a beltway bandit, uh, uh, being a, a consultant to the government, and uh, decided to move to the United States to become a uh, Dungeons and Dragons author. 
to write novels. Huh. I did not know that about you. Yeah, that's how I got to the U.S. Uh, there happened to be a woman involved. There always is. Right. Uh, right. We got married. We got divorced over time. Right. Uh, but I stayed in the U.S. Uh, and eventually, um, uh, during that process, uh, owned uh, owned a game store in Lake Geneva, Wisconsin. Had uh, had uh, uh, Ernie Gygax of all people uh, working for me. So I, you know, I have yeah. uh, I, I have Dungeons and Dragons pedigree in me now. Um, Oh, sorry, Ernie. Was that Gary's son, or was that? Yeah, uh, that's right. Gary. Gary oh, used to run the uh, chess club at the game store. Okay. Oh, for goodness' sake. So yeah, that was fun. Fun. So I, I knew all the uh, the original guys from uh, from the Dungeons and Dragons times, but I wasn't there during that time. Right. I showed up in the U.S. in 1994. Right. Was yes. that when uh, Game Designers Workshop was in uh, Lake Geneva? They weren't in Lake Geneva. They were down south in Bloomington, Normal, Illinois. Oh, okay. Uh, which was only maybe a three, three and a half hour drive. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah but TSR was in Lake Geneva. Oh, uh, that's right. 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 Yeah. And they were the publishers of Dungeons and Dragons. And then, of course, uh, Game Designers Workshop, uh, just a little bit south. And then just uh, five hours north up into Minneapolis, you had all the GHQ guys, the CNC, and all those guys. Right. Right. So it was a sort of a, a war gamer mecca because we were only a couple hours from Chicago as well. So all the Chicago guys were there. Right. Like the emperor's headquarters and so on. So you were kind of in on the ground floor of the sort of the golden age of American war gaming. Uh, maybe, maybe one step behind. I think the golden age was, was a step ahead of me, but, uh, but I, I came in on the, on the short coattails of it. Right. Yeah. I guess the gaming age would be what Avalon Hill, SBI, Jim Dunnigan, that, that era in the 70s. Yeah, and I would say that would be what, like mid to late 80s, and then I showed up in the early 90s. Okay, yeah, yeah. But still an yeah. exciting time. It was, yes. I yeah. got involved in, um, in first of all, writing uh, science fiction and fantasy, uh, and then into Dungeons and Dragons novels, and then uh, got into publishing it, because I, I had a technical background. Uh, the, uh, the concept of, of digital publishing or, or, or publishing by a, a digital printing presses uh, interested me. And so we got into that. We started publishing our own uh, role-playing game rules. Uh, and then um, eventually I became a digital pub, uh, printer myself. So became a print-on-demand company and published, for example, uh, um, uh, Frank Chadwick's um, uh, Command Decision um the the latest version uh did a bunch of of stuff uh for all sorts of publishers across the united states and i think it was just the united states that uh, we published. it's always uh prohibitively expensive to to ship books across you know bulk books across a, a border right right uh in that period uh uh started uh started with uh, M1 magazine uh, in the United States. Uh, it was a famous little um, five and a half by eight and a half uh, Wargamers um, magazine published by Hal Thinglem. Uh, but he was wanting to get out of it and he sold the, the, the magazine to me uh, and uh, I continued publishing it uh, as, as M1 uh, for I think 10 or 12 issues. Uh, yeah. Before we um, we then also acquired the Courier magazine. Okay. Okay. Uh, I was going to ask you about the Courier. Yeah. Uh, the Courier magazine uh, we picked up 
the, the subscriptions were down to something like 200 subscriptions. There was almost none left. Right. And, and advertisers weren't paying and all sorts of problems with it. So we picked it up for a song. And then uh, much to the chagrin of the American Wargamer market, uh, we killed it. Bought That's it right. Your fault that they weren't subscribing. That's right. And the advertisers weren't paying. That's right. Yeah. So what we did was we combined, we decided let's let's kill M1 and let's kill the courier and combine the two into a glossy color magazine called Historical Miniature Gamer magazine. Okay. And so we did that for 10 episodes or 10 is issues, I guess is the correct term. Mm -hmm. uh, and same thing, uh, subscriptions went way low. Uh, uh, it uh, it was it was like pulling hen's teeth to get any uh, publishers uh, or, or uh, advertisers to pay, uh, and so literally the money wasn't there. Hmm. Yeah. Now, why I have my theories, um, but I want to hear your theories about why North America, specifically the United States, can't support a glossy wargaming magazine. Well, I'm not sure it can support many glossy any magazine of any type huge magazines like vogue you might get away with it but even them their their numbers are so low at, in compared to their heyday i'm sure they're thinking about you know wrapping it up as well but technology has moved past this in, in my in my opinion a, a magazine is a 1900 to 1970s concept and we're no longer there hmm. But even, but you know, the, we still have like War Games Soldiers and Strategy coming out of Holland. We have War Games Illustrated and Miniature War Games coming out of Britain. Uh, there is Victus coming out of France. Um, I'm pretty sure there's an Italian magazine too. Yeah, there is. I see it on Betty and Piombo. Yes, that's it. You know, so these are these are small markets as well. Like, how is it like? why why can't you know the american market's huge i mean presumably there you know like there's 300 plus thousand or million americans there are yeah there's however many million war gamers um even dragon magazine which appealed to the role-playing market which is much a much bigger segment ah. of the of the um gaming scene than historicals like even that's gone true True. Um, North Americans don't like magazines. I'm I'm thinking that's the fact. Americans don't like war, uh, magazines and war game magazines in particular. Uh, I would think North Americans, based on the fact that, uh, for me to get, say, to you, James, or you, Mike, uh, a copy of my magazine, it would either have to go to a game store, and they would only order one or two because there just isn't the market for it. Yeah. yeah. Or I'd have to mail it directly to you. Uh, yeah, and North America's distances are so vast compared to Europe's that that's a that's a big deal. Mm -hmm. And that that then that's actually plays into my my theory as to why because you know you you were saying how you know Courier was was struggling with advertising revenue, HMG struggled with advertising revenue, and it's because all your advertisers they're struggling. Because geography is fighting against us in North yeah, America. Yeah, especially if you're if you're shipping lead. Um, yeah. It's one thing to ship lead from uh, uh, from 
say London, England to Paris, France. Mm -hmm. To us, to us, that's that's almost uh, you know from from one. It's not even across the province or across the state. That's uh, right. The distances that's are minuscule. That's just the next town over almost. Yeah. Uh, where where for us for me to ship to you is is uh, three thousand miles. Yeah. And and the same for for your small manufacturers that you're relying on for your advertising revenue. They're they're fighting with that. And then just the logistics of getting to the shows to see customers. You know, like anyone, you know, for most of them going to Historicon is a huge investment. To, yeah, that, for me it's a five hour flight. Yeah. And 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 they've got to bring all their stock. Like you can't just go for the day. You've got to stay like two, three nights hotels food whereas i think in england little manufacturers can make a go of it because they just pack the van they go to the show you know they bring a bag lunch and then they go home right right they don't have all those huge overheads to try and get out to the shows and get the people so they can afford to advertise in um the magazines the concept of the war game club is is much more prevalent in england and 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 perhaps across europe as well compared to North America. Mm -hmm. That's what I find that, that uh, because of the distances involved, you, don't, you, you can get together easier with a group of like-minded individuals uh, in Europe compared to, compared to us. For, but you know, for example, your group in Stratford, James, uh, is an anomaly in that you, you've got the, a similar group of people that continually get together, uh, which well, is how you eventually grew out your, your hot lead uh, convention. Yeah, although we've become pretty, we've we've we've, you know, become pretty fragmented too. You know, Keith and Brian are down in Chatham. Um, you know, Mike's moved up to Barrie. Yeah, so there are you know three yeah. four hour distances, yeah. and it, it gets hard to get together. Uh, that's true. Uh, now, just imagine if you if your gaming group started at the University of Chicago, uh, and and now two of them are in Tennessee, one of them's in still in Chicago. Tour in Los Angeles and, and one's in New York. Yeah, uh, digital is the only way to get together. Mm -hmm. yeah. I guess that's one thing we can thank COVID for is the the um, rise of virtual gaming. People yeah. playing for Zoom yeah. and Discord and stuff. Don, I, I wanted to go back to the like what happened to North American magazines. So I, I remember the Courier. Uh, I, I was probably one of the only high school kids in the '70s who had a subscription to it because I think my dad bought me one. Mm -hmm. I was weird. I remember it. Yeah, I remember it being quite crunchy in in that it was fairly historical and fairly uh, analytical. And then um, it was a mimeographed thing on a stiff cardboard. I think at some point they went over to a glossy magazine, but it was pretty. It was like it, a lot of it was like strategy and tactics used to be. It, it had. Um, you know, notices of conventions, it had people looking for opponents. Um, a lot of that sort of classified stuff disappeared just like it disappeared from our local papers because there's other ways to find contacts now through the internet. Um, and I, I, I think too that the death knell of a lot of those was just the, the, the as you said, the, the dwindling of subscriptions, right? So when strategy and tactics went off the air in the early 80s around the time that SPI collapsed, there were a lot of people with lifetime subscriptions that, um, you know, didn't, they just weren't honored because F SPI was defunct and a lot of those titles were fought over by other com companies, but the magazine died. 
So I just, I just wonder if people were just gun shy about subscribing to print magazines. Um, that could well be. I mean, yeah. uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to get you a lifetime uh, subscription uh, to a magazine that, when the company doesn't exist underneath it. Yeah, yeah. In fact, yeah. I noticed uh, just today that um, Modern Warfare magazine, which I think is an imprint from Strategy and Tactics, I don't know if that's Al Nafi still running it, but uh, they've announced that they're done as well. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, these they're, they're cults of personality at this point. You've got one strong personality that runs it, and if they stop, the whole thing stops. Yeah, yeah. And I, I guess there's just not the, the critical mass of North American manufacturers that would uh, that would provide the advertising. You know, because it's funny, when you look at WSS, the, the, the product advertising still seems to be pretty robust, right? Mm -hmm. I think that's true of some of the other British magazines as well, but... Well, because I, I think those small... Um, manufacturers in in the UK, they they can make a go of it, they, because they don't, you know, going to a show isn't horrendous overheads, so they can make a go of, of of running their business, and so advertising is a smart, you know, they can in, instead of spending their money on hotel bills at Historicon, they can spend that money on advertising in WSS and War Games Illustrated, because you know in, that's true, and those British those British uh, European manufacturers are shipping as much. To North America and Australia, as they are to, you know, I'm sure within the European Union or Great Britain, right? I mean, yeah, it hasn't gotten any cheaper to ship it, but it has gotten a lot more um, uh, reliable. So yeah. that if you order it, you have a, a very high percentage chance you're going to get what you order. Yeah. Well, James, you've been getting front rank orders within weeks, haven't you? Like in the last few weeks. The first one took a month, and then no. the second showed up in a week. I guess too, the other thing about the, what happened to magazines was that a lot of it migrated, that digital content migrated to uh, other forms of, of online presentation, right? So it would have been blogs in the, in the knots and yeah. then it would have been, um, you know, I guess a really good example of an in-house magazine would be uh, uh, Richard Clark's uh, Christmas Two Fat Lardies um, production, you know, which is mostly produced by the customer base, right? It's there's there's some content by the key personalities and two fat lardies, but a lot of that is is uh, content generated by you know people just doing it for fun, right? Yeah. Nobody's getting yeah. nobody's getting paid to produce that content. It's uh, it's kind That's of a labor of love by everybody. Well, the the World Wide Web has changed the way we access information as well. Uh, and not just the, the fact that you're looking at a screen versus looking at a piece of paper. Right. You no longer find that you go to a site or, or, or a web, like a website and spend uh, the afternoon reading through things or, or flipping from article to article to article. That's a rarity uh, these days. Mm -hmm. The much more common use case is to uh, think of a thing that you're trying to do and look it up. So if you don't show up in search results, you don't get read. So having a newsletter was a very early 90s thing because it was analogous to a, to a, a physical newsletter or a, or a um, magazine. But in the late, night, uh, late 2000s, uh, in, in the, now the 2020s, uh, if you were looking to say war game uh, Dien Bien Phu in the uh, French Indochina, uh, you'd just do a search for that and see what other people have. 
Uh, and if I come across a blog that happened to have an article on it, that's great. But I really don't go back to that blog every day or week or month. Uh, instead, I'm just looking for that one article and I'll save it because it's a reference for me. So that's a that's a real change that that magazines don't fit in anymore. <laughs> My dad used to uh, subscribe to Byte magazine because he was a big uh, computer guy. Uh, and he'd have stacks and stacks and stacks of them with tags in them trying to trying to remember where articles were. Well, that just doesn't exist anymore. No. You don't need to do that. Right. Well, I still do that. I've got my stacks of old War Games magazines and I kind of remember there was that article and I flipped through find but I'm weird. But if you had that uh, same collection of, of magazines as PDFs, uh, and we're just able to do a search on the entire stack in, in one thing. That would, that would probably find you things you weren't uh, didn't realize were in there. Absolutely, except I find a lot of my you know a lot of you know my personal search function for that it's muscle memory. Sure, sure. That, you know it's it's looking at the physical magazine, going right that cover. It's somewhere in here. Whereas a, yeah, trying to do a digital search, um, I know you know, I'd have to totally relearn how to do it. True, but but then again, your your schooling was was in that physical memory uh, concept too. You would go to the library and, and grab books to do to do research and so on. Yeah, right. Yeah, that well, isn't that isn't how they do it. No, do it these days. The young kids with their tickety talk and hippity hop music. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um, when I did a when I did a graduate degree uh, about uh, seven or eight years ago, I was astonished at how easy it was to do research online. You know, most articles, uh, you could access them through, you know, if you had a, if you were a graduate student, you could access them for almost for free. And you never right. had, like, I, I never actually went to a periodical room, which I used to do a lot, you know, like 20 years before last time I was in graduate school. Don, I, ha I had a question. We're talking about digital. Do you think in your opinion, somebody in North America who wanted to do a digital only war games magazine could succeed if you said i'm not going to do paper i'm just going to publish it electronically and sell copies or sell subscriptions or well, i have you, one you have one it's called historicalminiature.com historicalminiature.com okay that that'll go in our show notes tell us uh, about historicalminiature.com well um historicalminiature.com is is sort of that labor of love where we just publish what the heck we want uh and it uh it does absolutely nothing uh, it, it doesn't have the number of people to uh, to generate any um, uh, any volume, so you can't get an advertiser. Uh, and it um, it has the uh, the awkward uh, uh, other problem of, of how I described how people now search for information. Uh, nobody's searching for the information <laughs> that we're writing about uh, because it's so obscure, so so uh, you know like. Uh, my friend uh, Michael Kosnarski has written a series of how to how to build uh, emplacements for 28 millimeter Japanese emplacements on beaches. Uh, uh, I'm sure we get a, a searcher year that would show up that would that would actually ping our article that uh, he could go read about. Uh, they're effectively the same as Courier magazine articles were in the day. It's just that they're now online. Uh, but but the world has moved past us in that, that, that uh, concept that, that uh, I'm going to use the 1990s uh, IT uh, corporate phrase, the, the paradigm has shifted. Right. 
Well, you must be tagging. You must be tagging your your articles wrong. That you're not getting hits, right? Because wouldn't the keyword tag? Just like if I go do a search on Japanese bunkers, why wouldn't it take me to to? Oh, it probably it probably would. It's just that there are only three people in North America that search for Japanese bunkers uh, in a year. That's yeah. my, that's my guess. I'm, uh, I I probably exaggerate to the for for the point of uh, uh, explanation, but still. Um, yeah, I've been I've been asked to by people to use my blog articles as content for their e-zines. And so. of course, uh, it, it's it's democratic now. It means everybody can have one. Yeah. Which means uh, there aren't, there isn't one courier. There's five thousand couriers out there, and they all have good information on them. So there's no reason to say, well, I'm not going to read that one. I'm going to read this one. Um, uh, they've all got good stuff on it and different opinions and and different ways of doing things. But uh, you know, I think the same thing is going to happen to the manufacturer manufacturing of of the little toy soldiers we we play with. In fact, I think that's happening now. Yes, I just seen that. The, uh, I guess the price of metal has jumped thirty percent. Yeah, and I, I haven't bought a metal miniature in ten years now. Even though I used to be a manufacturer of metal figures, mm-hmm. I had my own spin casting company and and, yeah, I, and I made tons you, of this stuff. I helped you for a fun day uh, trying to. We're casting up ten millimeter Franco-Prussian war figures. Yeah, I used to be. Uh, uh, parent miniatures, which used to be chariot miniatures, uh, 10 millimeter line. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, uh, today I would just print that stuff. Yeah. Sorry, Don, your website is historicalminis.com. Is that it? Uh, HMDC, historicalminiatures.com. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just looking at it now. I tried historicalminiatures.com and it took me somewhere else. But yeah, here you are. I also see you have a you, you have a Wikipedia entry. I don't know anybody else personally has a Wikipedia entry. So <laughs> I'm famous. He is. Yeah. He's going to bring us all the groupies. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's. I, I was thinking. Uh, I think one of the premise of my questions earlier may have been that everything is great in the UK and Europe, and it's it's tough in the North America. But I, that's not true. Obviously, if you just talk to Henry Hyde. You know, he could tell you that his attempt to do um, his battle games uh, magazine folded, and now he does a lot of stuff that's financed primarily through Patreon. Correct. Um, yeah, he was the same sort of time period as Historical Minute or uh, HM HMG Magazine or Historical Miniature Gamer Magazine. Uh, right. Right. Competitors at that time. Um, yeah. But yeah. And he's got a couple of books that I know he's not happy about the distribution of, of his latest book, his book on campaigns, I think. But uh, yeah, he's, I mean, Henry's kind of moved to a different model altogether. That's, uh, you know, sort of like a lot of people now that's sort of Patreon Kickstarter, you find people that are willing to bankroll your offering, which I guess is a 20th first century variant on the old subscription model, right? Well, I think it's a, it's a variant, like just like, it, like it's named on the 16th century of having a patron. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and I, I I'm actually a Henry Hyde patron. I don't give him a lot of money a month, but I I throw a couple of bucks out of my month. And then there's also uh, the buy me a coffee thing, right? Where you can throw some right. money at people. Yeah, uh, I, I enjoyed this article or or this uh, this episode. Here here's three bucks or something. Uh, go have a coffee or, or 
Yeah. You know, enough people do that. You, you, thousand people do that. You just got three thousand dollars. Even wow. if five people did that, you got fifteen. Yeah. I, I haven't discussed with James whether a Canadian Wargamer podcast should have a Patreon. I'm not exactly sure what I do uh, with any contributions. I think we're <laughs> we buy more shoestring. I don't know. Uh, you know, spend it on on uh, loose women and and uh, booze or more miniatures that we don't paint. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's but true. Looking, um, you know, from manufacturing, let's segue into that. Um, sure. You're, you're yeah, because you you've done like old school spin casting. I yeah, remember the entire spin cast factory. Yeah, I remember you. Um, talking about you had this great idea that you're going to do um plastic tanks and you know all the parts would be on a you know you'd get like five tanks on a frame and then there'd be the options and stuff well that sounds familiar where have i heard that before yeah yeah um yeah we came up with that idea in the 80s yeah uh, thinking that you know it's it's one we thought let's do n scale railroad or one to 160 which turned out to be what what most people call 10 millimeter which is how i got into the parent 10 millimeter world war ii ranges was i wanted to try to start executing on that now we did it in metal because we didn't have the capacity to do plastic uh, manufacturing uh so that was the concept that's how i got into the spin cast world uh, and it and it's telling. It's it's exactly the same sort of analogy as as paper magazines. Uh, by the time I was finished in 2015, I gave the equipment away. It wasn't worth anything to sell it. Hmm. So I gave away an entire factory of equipment to a friend of mine who wanted to continue running it uh, for for hobby sort of purpose. Where yeah. today I have I have created. Um, uh, I'm making Fire and Fury uh, figures. I used to play Fire and Fury in 15 millimeter, where I would put five or, or three guys on a base, uh, the, the standard one inch by three quarter inch base, and we'd have. I painted your army of the Potomac. There you go. Yes, you did. <laughs> Good segue. <laughs> it looks like a painting union. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, um, so some I don't know where those figures went, but they're, they're long gone. But now I'm getting back into it. Um, <laughs> I have currently, uh, I'm printing with a 3D printer, six guys uh, in a line twice on a, on a base. So there are two ranks of them on a one inch by three quarter inch base uh, as a single um, piece. It's, you don't glue anything together. It just comes out of the printer, ready to go. And then, and then you just, uh, you paint them from there. They come out to be about say 7.5, eight millimeter. And this is the, the interesting thing is, is that um, I bought this uh, uh, collection of STLs, which is the electronic uh, file that you use to generate the, uh, the 3D print. And I can print as many as I want. I, I now have 100 Union stands, 100 Confederate stands, the artillery, the uh, command stands, uh, uh, the generals, the wagons, and so on, uh, the caissons uh, and, and limbers. Um, I printed it in about a month and uh the whole army is there now i'm i'm painting it but but they're but like they're like painting the the old glory uh 10 millimeter strips if you remember those old yeah. glory did 
so, so if you want to paint, I, I spray paint them light blue for the union and then uh, come in with a paintbrush and, and do a strip of dark blue across the top that, uh, that basically get, catches all their, uh, their, their frock coats, uh, that sort of thing. But that's, that's 3D printing for me. If I had had to have bought those, uh, I'm sure I would have been into the many hundreds of dollars uh, mm -hmm. buying that many figures uh, and preparing them and gluing them onto bases and so on, where within a month I had that with a printer that cost me $250 yeah. and some resin that cost me 50 Yeah, now it, now for for Wargamers, it's just searching out the the designers that are doing right. Nice, doing nice designs that you like that you want to that you want to print and this is where i use patreon as i back some of these designers so that uh they send me free stuff or not free stuff but but um patron stuff uh every month yeah yeah and, and um i know i um chap on the uh um wargaming and middle earth facebook group He's printing me some very nice orcs, and it's basically I'm, you know, I'm, you know we're, we're paying the designer an extra ten euros for the license for him to you know print for someone else. Yeah, and it cost me resin and postage. Right. You know, so and and yeah, and, and this this designer he sets it up where yeah, if you just want to print for yourself, it's this you know level of license, but if you want to have a little store and print things for people and sell them then you know your license is this much higher exactly yeah and and i'm just uh for these acw figures it's a guy in france who speaks no english uh uh how, how why he got into the american civil war i guess it's just his uh his, his interest uh so he did that and he's doing some fabulous 28 millimeter falchum jagger that are <laughs> that i think are better than uh any Fallschirmjäger I've seen on the market from like a plastic manufacturer or a metal manufacturer, and and uh, I can I I can print as many as I want, which yeah. just kind of blows me away. Yeah, and and the the I remember what was it five years ago? Was it even five years ago? It was still like three D printing was still very limited and on organic shapes. Like getting faces and stuff right was just yeah. like they're still very blocky. But now it's just like, you know, like look at uh, Caballero Designs, which I keep mentioning because I, you know, um, I keep seeing their stuff, his stuff being painted on Twitter. And it's just like mind blowing how natural the poses are and everything. You know, you don't have that sort of flat to fit in the spin cast. Exactly. Kinda. You don't need to do that anymore. You can produce figures that could never be produced uh, in metal without being multi-part. Yeah. Mm. So cool, uh, and and uh, they're using the same electronic tools to create these figures as they would if they were going to be put into a plastic mold. Right, uh, they're right. using Blender or or three uh, D Fusion or uh, other um, uh, CAD or or organic uh, sculpting programs. Uh, they're the exact same ones, so the exact same designers can can say produce uh, Space Marines for Games Workshop during the day. And at night, produce a little line of uh, uh, of French fusiliers if he feels like it, and, and sell them on the side. Yeah, and there's a there's quite the uh, market in games that Games Workshop is no longer supporting. In oh yeah. yeah, like like I've heard Epic 40K is there's all kinds of stuff out there for printers. Sure, uh, I have no clue uh, uh, what the legality is of printing a, a Lehman Rust tank 
for Epic is. Uh, I'm sure Games Workshop would tell you you can't do that. If you don't call it a Lehman Russ, if you call it like, I don't know, a He-Man Rust. Just, I don't, it isn't just the name that, that uh, <laughs> it, it has to be a modification. It has to be different, but according to the law. But then again, who's taken a, a guy who produces this stuff, stuck it up online for free, and you could download it and print it out. What's the point in going after him? Yeah. So, Don, uh, you have a technical background. I'm not surprised that you're uh, um, you're totally au fait with uh, 3D printing. If somebody was listening to a, a podcast or a, watched a video, like um, I know, uh, what's his name? The Sonic Sledgehammer guy did a video on his YouTube channel recently where he uh, made 3D printing look very, very simple kind of walked you through the whole process. If uh, some clueless old git like, uh, I don't know, me, bought, uh, <laughs> bought a 3D printer, how, how and, and if I bought some SDL files uh, from a Kickstarter that I could mit, uh, mix and match the headgear and equipment in Blender, as I heard uh, somebody talk about recently, how frustrated would I be? Like, would I just, you know, how much time would I have to invest to figure the whole thing out? Uh, are you talking about the Turner Miniatures uh, Napoleonics uh, line? The six mil line, yeah. There was an interview with uh, a guy in the UK. He was uh, on Andy Clark's um, uh, God's Own Scale podcast a couple of months ago. Yeah. yeah. And he does, he does American Civil War. Reason. Yeah, it looks, uh, the stuff looks absolutely fascinating. The figures are a little bit chunky, but um, it would save me, like if I wanted to rush an army for my Napoleonics, or if I just wanted to get into six mil ECW, I mean, why not just print the whole stuff, right? Yeah. Now those look those look like squat, like like the dual, but uh, electronically, that's an easy fix. I just stretch them in the Z axis by say twenty percent, and they look relatively normal. Um, right. Now, what would be your frustration? I would say medium to high if you don't have a, a some technical background. These are these are like if you picked up a laser printer in the 1980s and you wanted to network two computers, um, they're, they're not appliances yet. They're yeah. still uh, fiddly. I uh, got to work around some technical issues, but every year they get better and better and easier and easier. Um, yeah. But for example, if, if you printed them out and they were like 20% too big to match up with your Bacchus six millimeter guys or whatever they were, and you decided to change that, you'd figure that out in, in much less than an afternoon. Mm -hmm. uh, and if you wanted to, uh, now the complication comes when you're doing something like Blender, uh, right. where you want to actually say, well, I like these guys, but I want to put Tarleton's on their, on their heads versus Shaco's, for example. Um, that, that's, a, that's a level above. Most 3D printers at this point, or 3D printing guys at this point, don't do that. They either find the guy with the, the Tarleton or they find the guy with a Shaco and, and that's it. You would generally go to a specialist, you know, t uh, bit nerd who could do that for you. This is, when, this is when your Patreon subscription comes in because then you can, uh, you know, then you'd say, hey, guy that I'm paying money to every month, could you do the same figure and just swap hats? Yes. And in fact, uh, this guy that we're talking about at Turner Miniatures, what he has done is he set up his uh, his his figures 
uh, with layers. So you can turn off the layer with the Shaco and turn on the layer with the Tarleton and then just sort of electronically output that, that file. And now he's got a Tarleton. So he's actually thought about it ahead of time. You don't actually have to electronically sculpt a new Tarleton on, on each figure. He's thought about, you know, nine or 11 um, different hats, uh, nine or 11 different uh, uniform types, and then switch and swap off of a, a, a skeletal body sort of thing. So it's almost like playing Mr. Dress Up. Uh, that's a good Canadian reference. Go into your tickle trunk and, uh, and that's right. uh, take out your uniform. Yeah. Hey kids, let's take out our Shaco and be fusiliers today. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, so Mike, to your point, I would say if you bought a, uh, you know, a, a printer, if, if you got a brain in your head, you'll make it work. Um, but it isn't as, as simple as I push print like I do in a laser printer and I pop the thing. Yeah. Uh, I, I I put in some resin and I push print on, on my on my 3D printer and I get a thing. But then I have to wash it in a in a solvent to clear off the liquid resin that's on there. And then I have to shine UV light on it, whether that be outside or in a UV um, uh, uh, chamber to uh, to cook it. Uh, uh, so there's there's more steps that I have to do. Um, I have to be cognizant of the fact that this resin is both caustic and poisonous. So yeah. I can't just dump it down the drain. I can't just sort of stick my hand in it. I'm wearing rubber gloves uh, and wearing uh, eye protection. Uh, these are things that you don't worry about when, you do, when you're talking about a laser printer, but you do when you're talking about a 3D printer. Yeah. So there, it, it's not as easy as the commercials will tell you. Yeah. But it's it isn't like as hard. I mean, I, I bet that would take you a solid afternoon to figure out. So if you're willing like to put in at least that much time or a weekend, you'll figure it out. Hmm. Someone like me who's very impatient with technology should maybe just like have friends of 3D printers to print things for them. There you go. And, and maybe after a year of, of going over to his place and watching him how he did it and, and all that, you might feel brave enough to go ahead and do it at that point. Yeah. But, but you know, the, the option is there is like, <laughs> you've got this guy who could do it for you. Why would I ever want a 3D printer when he'll do it for me? Exactly. Well, and, it's, it's kind of like presuming on your friends is like presuming on your friend with a pickup truck to help you whenever you exactly you move something right you don't want to be that guy who's always got his hand up um, now the 3d printers are a little bit slow say, say i was telling you about my acw for fire and fury i can produce say in an evening uh, i start the print uh, at the end of my work day and the next morning it's is done but i would get say 10 stands out of that but and you're thinking to yourself well if i ordered a uh, hundred stands of stuff it would just show up and i'd be ready to go to start assembly but if you think of it this way, is I got 10 stands on Monday, and I got 10 stands on Tuesday, and I got 10 stands on Wednesday, and so on. In two weeks, I've got 100 stands. I, I don't think there's an ACW game that needs more than 100 stands. No. So, and it only took me two weeks, where, where uh, it might take me, if I, was, if I was mailing front rank from England, two to four weeks, just as, a, as an example. So for those who, who are worried about, well, this thing is slow and I only get, say, three tanks or 10, 10 stands or whatever, uh, it really is an issue for home use. I, I think for me, the, the, the stumbling block that always makes me draw back from the idea of investing in the technology, it's not so much the learning curve, it's, you know, it's the, what I call the temporal access. So yeah, I can print in 3D, but I can't print the time 
that I would need to print those 10 figures that I could, or 10 stands that I could produce every day. Um, at some point, the, the amount of time that I have to paint figures is never going to increase. And <laughs> if, if I want, um, you know, a uh, early Napoleonic army, uh, maybe the best thing for me to do is, as I just did recently, is order a bunch of packs from Bacchus and then paint them when I can. Just printing them in my basement, assuming I knew how to do that, still leaves me with a problem of how do I fit them into my print queue? So right, right. Maybe, it doesn't solve any of that. Yeah. So maybe for somebody like me, who's, you know, painting time is measured in maybe 60 to 90 minutes a day on a good day, um, I, I should content myself with what I can buy in letter plastic and then wait for the, the whole industry to, to, to morph as it surely will in the rest of our lifetimes. Yeah. And I'm guessing it will. Yeah. Because who knows what, uh, you know, what ordering figures from a manufacturer is going to look like in, in 10 or 20 years. It was interesting when we talked to Bob Merch a couple of months ago, Bob was talking about getting into 3d printing, but he, he was nervous about having his name associated with figures that people would produce on their own machines. And, you know, I think he's still feeling like he would need to have a product to produce, whether it was spin cast or whether it was printed, you know, he, mm -hmm. uh, so I think a lot of smaller manufacturers are probably looking at how the market is going and try to figure out what, where they're going to go. Right. Well, in Bob's case, I don't want to solve Bob's problem for him. Uh, he's a exceptionally smart fellow. Um, one thing that he might want to do is do something like uh, when he does a range, if, if he decides to do all of the main uh, uh, personalities and so on, or the specialty items as he is doing them today, but the basic rank and file of what he wants uh, could be released as an electronic file for other people to do. Hmm. It means, you know, if I, uh, um, was it Flint and Feather? That's his, one of his lines? Yeah, if, that's right, yeah. If, if he did basic, uh, 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 say, Iroquois Indians, uh, and he and and he did say three or four poses that you could do your your masses with, but all the all the the leaders and the um, uh, specialty items like canoes or or, or uh, uh, other items like that, you would go to him for. Uh, he could potentially grow his market because I could start with getting all that sort of rank and file stuff out of the way, uh, and then know I could go to go to Bob and get uh, more figures of the specialty items that would guaranteed to fit in with the ones I just printed. Because mm. they'd be the same style, they'd be the same uh, weight of uh, um, features and so on, on the figure. Because they're the same sculpted. Yeah. Just an idea. Yeah, or you know, you have two different ways to buy it. You right. Know, go to, to James's uh, Miniatures Emporium and, and yeah, either buy the physical thing and then it costs X dollars and I print it out for you and mail it to you. Or you buy the file from me for less than X and you print it out yourself and take, you know, take all the problems of that on. Well, uh, since the 80s, we've had a problem with digital rights management. And, and I think that's what a lot of uh, creators are worried about is that uh, I create this file and I've got one guy who bought it. Uh, Mike Peterson bought my STL file. And Mike just gives it to James. Uh, yeah. No money got exchanged and I never saw it, nor, nor was I even aware of it, but I've lost effectively a sale. 
Um, that's that's a concept that a lot of um, uh, creators struggle with. It's the right. same thing with an electronic book. It's the same thing with a movie. Um, so yeah. it's not a new problem, but but I, I think that does weigh on a lot of the uh, digital sculptors out there. Yeah, or you're worried about, I don't know, like um, some guy in China setting up a uh, printing shop and yeah, printing all the figures. Printing your designs and then then mailing them around the world and you're not seeing a penny for it. Well, and they do that today with physical physical device. You know, if I send off to uh, to have say my Sherman tanks printed in a Chinese plastics factory, I can be certain they're going to show up in a in, in a grab bag at at uh, Walmart for a dollar ninety nine sometime in the future. Right, right. And that, that's been happening for years with scale models, right? Like Matchbox exactly. and Airfighters kits have been produced uh, in greatly inferior versions, you know, for decades in. Asia, right? You never know what you're going to get in an old Airfix or Matchbox. Uh, That's true. Yeah. yeah. So, so it's nothing new. It's just that uh, as a as a manufacturer or, or a sculptor, you have to uh, wrestle with these uh, issues. I think the one thing that I notice when I look at uh, you know there, there's that subgenre on hobby Twitter of, hey, look what I just bought, right? So people are always like taking pictures of. Uh, whatever came in the post that day. And 90% of the time, it seems to me that they're taking pictures of either, you know, little metal figures in plastic baggies or, you know, boxes of injection molded stuff from Victrix or Perry's. Um, a few people are saying, hey, look what I printed. But I think the vast majority of the hobby right now are probably content to order a physical product. Well, you know, it all depends on where you look. Where I look, because I'm tuned into that, I see the exact opposite. Oh, okay. But, but it, but it's confirmation bias, right? That I'm looking for. <laughs> Very true. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. That's an excellent point. Yeah, I don't watch unboxing videos. I watch uh, uh, take it off the build plate videos. Oh, okay. Okay. <laughs> well, you just reminded me of something a professor of mine once said, which is that he who relies on anecdotes is an idiot. So there you go. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's my life. <laughs> Yeah. Well, yeah, I do kind of wonder what's going to happen in, yeah, five, ten years with, I mean, the Perrys aren't old guys. Like, they're younger than us. I'm just Not by much, though. Hmm? I think they're a similar age to us. Oh, yeah. they, they seem younger. Maybe they're just because just they're keeping their hair. Yeah. <laughs> That's, yeah. But, you know, like, they, I, I kind of wonder if they're, you know, what they're thinking. Because of course they're you know they've really upped their design game and and they've really gone into the injection molded you know they yep. still they still do you know they still they have thousands of old school metal figures which they still sell. I, I don't think they're going away, uh, and I don't think people are stopping buying their stuff, but they're no longer like the only uh, guy in town to to get the stuff from. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this is all really interesting, Don, because uh, this morning I was almost um, I was almost ready to pull the trigger on ordering a, an Elegu Mars Pro printer. Um, and, Very nice. Uh, yeah, so I, I think I'm 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 still orbiting around that decision, but I every time I come close to it, I talk myself out of it. So. <laughs> well, uh, there is a website out there called Home3DPrints.com. Yeah, that I'm quite proud of that I that I maintain, and it's all about 3D printing for the home. And when I say home, I mean uh, hobby. Right, right. 
so if I can uh, help out uh, in your journey, please uh, call upon me. All right. I may do that for sure. Um, when we say home, yeah, we mean hobby. I'm pretty sure I'm not going to convince my wife that I could print anything useful. Yeah, she's her. not printing out uh, decorative spoons or anything. No, that's for sure. Well, okay. you know, I uh, lost the, the hose clips for my rain barrels. So now the, the you know, hoses just lie in the lawn and I have to move them all the time. And I, I keep thinking, wow, you know, if I had a 3D printer, I could just like print new hose clips. Yes, you could. And that'd be great. But, but then it's like, well, it's like two, you know, how many hundreds of dollars <laughs> for this piece of technology that will drive me mad to print like two little plastic hose clips. Yeah. But the nice part is it, it doesn't just print hose clips. No, no. No, I am. It but... also prints uh, uh, Pegasus Bridge and it prints uh, orcs. Orcs and it prints uh, terrain models of, of an orc hideout and it yeah. you know and 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 co collective collective spoons and whatever else you're doing that day. And I could get the kind of hobbits that I want, as opposed to all the crap that I see. Yeah, I mean that that is a, a nice part, and especially as we go on in time, the variety will just increase. Yeah, true. I think this is. Um... You know, it certainly changed things, just like with magazines. Yeah, I think we're uh, we're we're right at the forward edge of a sea change in the way the miniatures world works. I think in five years, if you went to a historicon or a hot lab, you will find that I don't know. I'm going to pull a number out of, out of the air. Fifty percent of all the figures on the on the game tables that you see are going to be some form of 3D printed uh, figure or drain or whatever mm -hmm. uh, or maybe it's higher percentage and maybe it's lower but i'm guessing it's higher rather than lower well i mean at hot lead we still have game masters who run games with the old airfix soft plastic stuff sure sure and those guys aren't going to stop and, and nor should they those are fun games yeah uh, but i think that uh, uh, uh a 14 year old kid who's getting into it now uh, is vastly more likely to, to uh, use his dad's printer or maybe his own printer uh, mm -hmm. to create his armies rather than buying a Games Workshop army for 10 times the price or, or right. Perry's or, or whoever. Well, we'll have, to, uh, we'll have to get you on in 10 years from now, Don, so we can uh, <laughs> revisit this issue. And, I'll and put it on my calendar. <laughs> for, for the uh, podcast number 50. Yes, I'm sure. I'm, I'm sure there will be. I think. Yeah, <clears throat> James, was there anything else uh, we wanted to talk to Don about? Experience. I mean, okay. What are you? What are you personally doing right now, Don? Well, I did allude to uh, some of it before, which was my American Civil War figures for uh, for Fire and Fury. Mm -hmm. But I'm also producing. Uh, I like. I'm a. I'm a. I'm a tank guy. Uh, mm -hmm. I was in the uh, Royal Canadian Electrical and Mechanical Engineers, which is the maintenance organization for for all sorts of things uh military and um uh where i worked was the rebuild and overhaul facility for uh armored fighting vehicles in montreal called 202 workshop mm. uh and there you know um uh being around tanks and armored personnel carriers and and self-propelled guns all the time uh, really got me hooked uh so so i've been producing tanks and tanks and more tanks uh, all the way from uh, World War II tanks to uh, we were talking earlier about uh, Team Yankee or, or Cold War type. So I've, I've 
I've produced them in multiple scales because I can do that. So I've got sort of 10 millimeter armies and I've got 15 millimeter armies. And uh, for the for the fire and fury stuff, um, uh, it's about seven or eight millimeter. And uh, what Mike and I were talking about earlier about Turner miniatures and their, their Napoleonics, uh, I'm intending to do exactly the same thing for Age of Eagles, which is the Napoleonics fire and fury variant. Uh, right. I intend to produce the same stands using those uh, electronic files. Cool. Yep, so that I can get sort of the, 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 that mass battles thing in about a seven or eight millimeter mm -hmm. figure strip uh, onto, a, onto a one inch by a three quarter inch base. So yeah. that's my, my electronic uh, uh, printing, but it's also my, my wargaming painting and, and so on. And horror upon horrors, I've got a few Necrons that I'm I'm putting together for 40k because, just because, because yeah. I like it. <laughs> Necrons are cool. Yeah. Yeah, we're, we're going to hold against you. Yeah. So yeah, Don, for, for your, what are you doing for gaming, Don? Are you uh, are you gaming uh, in addition to all this uh, technical stuff that you're doing? Yeah. Um, uh, I'm uh, I'm still an aficionado of uh, Fire and Fury, so I, I uh, Fire and Fury, but um, Sorry, uh, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, what's the uh, World War II variant of Team Yankee? Uh, oh, uh, Flames of War. Flames of War, uh, another F. Uh, had a had a little brain fart there, but Flames of War. I'm a big fan of Flames of War uh, in 15 millimeter. Uh, uh, play lots and lots of that still. So oh, that's my my gaming. Uh, uh, I'm trying to gear up to play a, a game of Warhammer 40k again, but I'm not I'm not rushing towards that. Really, uh, Flames of War and Fire and Fury are my two uh, go-to game systems right now. Huh. Well, actually, Fire and Fury is almost old school these days. It is. It is. Yeah. But they, they, Fire and Fury really kind of, um, they were a, another disruptive thing when they hit the market because they were... You know, glossy cover looked good, like actual color pictures. Yeah, yeah color pictures, decent, readable layout, a nice tech uh, typeface. Yeah, and a lot easier to learn than uh, John Hill's uh, Johnny Reb. Yeah, that, right. That, and uh, and and less. Uh, you know, what I learned in Johnny Reb was never do a charge, never <laughs> ever ever do a charge in a war game. Otherwise, you'll be there for weeks. Yes. Uh, <laughs> Where Fire and Fury, that it's it's abstracted at least at the the version I'm using at the brigade level, uh, mm -hmm. and so it's still pretty easy. It's just add a plus one here, minus one there, roll yeah. a tie ten, or a, so on, and see what happens. I, I think they're way fun. But John, but Fire and Fury really changed how War Games rules look. Yes, yeah, it was a sea change. Uh, Rich Hasenauer, uh had a background as a graphic designer, mm. uh, and then as a hobbyist, he was a game designer. So uh, it put, a, put an organized mind uh, in with an artistic mind, and you've got a nice set of rules come out. Yeah. Instead of, the, instead of these, these cramped pages of 10-point courier typeface and little black and white diagrams, which often were sort of all at the and back. Drawn. Yeah. <laughs> They're all on the back page. You know, and you go, okay, I'm looking for diagram two. Yeah. Know. Yeah. Um, yeah, which are just... I don't miss those days. No. No, I don't. I don't miss those rules at all, really. Um, yeah. And today, uh, I think I think we're going to go to the electronic uh, rules over time. That they're no longer uh, um, developed as a book. 
they're developed as a cross-reference mechanism so that I don't have to uh, uh, read it from cover to cover. I, re I, I use it as I use it in the game. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's that's where that's where electronic rules have to have a. They've really got to got to work on getting a good search function. Yeah, yeah. just having or, a PDF version of the rules on your iPad doesn't quite. I mean, it's no, that, that's just a book in electronic format versus yeah. uh, something like like a wiki page, which references everything else. So if I'm doing a charge, I can click here to say, okay, what is the movement rate for that charge, or what is the uh, what is the return fire before I engage? Uh, all that sort of stuff, pop-ups. All using the electronic tools to their maximum versus just taking a book and turning it into an electronic PDF. Yeah, yeah. I, I hate flipping through. I flipping through a, a physical book is much easier than trying to flip through a PDF. Yeah, I even find that with Ospreys. I have a couple of digital um, Ospreys, uh, and you know, they're cheap and you get them like within a second. Um, but, you know, whereas you might have to wait a month to get like Frederick the Great's cavalry or something like that. But then, you know, the flip, 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 where are the plates, flip, 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 where are the text, you know, it's tedious. Speaking of books, Don, you gave us a couple of suggestions for our virtual library, which is something that we've totally stolen from uh, Sean Clark's uh, Joy of, no, not Joy of Six. He'll hit me if I say that. God's Own Scale podcast. And so you sent us a couple of really interesting suggestions, which I'm just looking at the email where you sent them to me. I'm guessing but, one of them is a repeat, which was Operation Husky by um, by Mark Zwolke. Is Did I pronounce his last name correctly? I think so. Mark Zwolke, yep. Yeah. Um, I think uh, other people have mentioned that on your podcast already. But it was it, it was a fascinating read for me, and I, it was it was my favorite in his series so far. Hmm. Yeah, it was a good read. I, I liked it quite a bit. So it's also the war game period that I'm interested in. Are you really? Yeah. So so these land mattresses that I have painted for you on my on my shelf that just haven't been been sent to Vegas, they're they're going to be really anachronistic. Oh, uh, they were for they were, they will be for Sicily, but don't forget, First Division uh, did move over to North to. Uh, to Europe uh, for for the Pine uh, 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 campaign, so uh, they'll be used there for that's for sure. Okay, that's good. Yeah, we'll, we'll want them to go to waste. No, they will not go to waste. Trust me, buddy. <laughs> no, that's a great suggestion, uh, Don. Um, and then the other one is the Operation Warboard, which you mentioned, right? That's right. Yeah, it was my very first set of war game rules, and and also um, it was sort of the first time I had ever seen war gaming described in a in a printed material. Yeah. So it was it was sort of like uh, a validation of of sort of these uh, little kid fantasies of, of moving around my toys to, oh, there's a serious game I could play with this where a Sherman tank is not as strong as a tiger tank. Um, uh, but but how do I how do I do things? Uh, how fast does the tiger tank go? How how much armor on the front versus on the side uh, in a very nice, easy, simplistic way? They're they're a nice little quick set of rules. It'd be interesting to see if that's uh, still in print. That's public. That was written by Gavin and Bernard Lyle, I think, are the authors. That's correct. Yeah, uh, I think oh. it's father and son. Gavin was a uh, was a um, a novelist, and he and he talked his publisher into producing this book. He said, "Like I, I produce a ton of novels for you. Here, produce this for me, and then I'll go back to producing novels for you." Well, I'll have I'll have to uh, do a search to see if that's still in print. There's a um, there's a there's a, like a War Games Library reprint series. I can't remember who's behind that, but. It'd be interesting to see if that book appears in there. 
Yeah, I've read a couple of uh, of uh, Featherstone books uh, from the and uh, and Grant's. Yeah, in there. Yeah. Well, I'll put I'll put both of those in the uh, in the show notes. Awesome. Yeah, yeah those are my uh, uh, two of my favorites in the last little while. Yeah, you were pretty modest. You didn't put any of your own books, and you mentioned uh, when you went to the states, it was to uh, to write um, Dungeons and Dragons books. Yes. Yeah. Did you do those under your own name? Uh, mm -hmm. I did, uh, along with my uh, my ex-wife, who was my co-author, uh, and many of them, Margaret Weiss. Okay. Uh, she and I wrote uh, several books together. Uh, uh, three three of them were an independent sci-fi series called the Knights of the Black Earth series. Uh, and then uh, the rest were all uh, in the Dragonlance uh, line of Dungeons & Dragons novels. Oh, yes, yes. I remember Dragonlance very well. Yeah. Your draconian bridging company. Yes, yeah, my uh, my Doom Brigade, <laughs> which was one of the titles uh, that I, I wrote. Great yeah. fun. And you'll see a lot of Canadian yeah. military well, we're talking uh, about, organization um, in there. Yeah, well, that's a, that's a great uh, cue. Let's uh, segue. So we're going to keep you on for the rest of the podcast because you're, rather than dismissing you and James and I doing our own thing, because um, this is a natural segue to what we call our Canadian content corner. Well, that is, of course, the Maple Leaf Forever, the old national anthem of the Old Dominion, and it marks the start of the Canadian Content Corner. That's the part of the podcast where James and I just have a bit of a natter about Canadian military history, about Canadian gaming, or just general Johnny Canuck stuff that makes us darn proud to have maple syrup coursing through our veins. And so as the Maple Leaf Forever, played by Her Majesty's Irish Guards, dies away, here is the Canadian Content Corner. I just wanted to mention um, uh, Brad St. Saint Croix or St. Croix, who has a YouTube channel called Canadian, uh, no, On This Day in Canadian Military History, um, has a, a really good interview on Operation Husky with a, an author called... Um, Alex Fitzgerald Black, who's a Canadian historian of uh, air power. Mm. And that's a great overview of the whole Operation Husky campaign. And Alex is an interesting guy because he wrote a book on Canadian air power in uh, um, Sicily. Excuse me for a second. I've got a runny nose and I'm blowing it all the time. We'll just edit that out. Yeah. So there's a ton of, uh, there's a ton of stuff on that, um, uh, on that interview, which is on YouTube. And then um, uh, I've been mentioning in, the last few podcasts that I've been following uh, something called the uh, the Maple Leaf Roots webinar series, which is published by um, the Wilfrid Laurier Center for Military and Disarmament Studies. And that's a group of uh, Canadian historians that are, are talking about various, the Canadians in Normandy, although that's kind of a, a broad hold all for the various talks. But the one I just finished listening to was again by this guy, Alex Fitzgerald Black, the air historian. And it was a really interesting take on the role of air support in um, the Normandy campaign. So, you know, his point was that we often think of the, uh, like the typhoon as the, you know, the plane of death that flies across the battlefield and strafes the Panzer and blows the turret off the, off the Panther. You know, James, you and I have 
you know, tried, tried that in our games, I think a few times. Oh, I keep missing. Yeah. Well, his point is you should, because the, <laughs> the Typhoon was a pretty, you know, terrible weapon for taking on tanks. Uh, you know, yeah, the weapons, the weapons they carry just weren't accurate enough. For... Area interdiction, no. Well, that's his whole point was that, yeah, you could, you, you could have. That they just, they, they slowed them down. Yeah. The, his whole point was that uh, air power um, was really designed to take out, you know, soft, soft skin vehicles, supply vehicles, repair vehicles, you know, that whole second echelon stuff that Don, you would know from your military training, um, Indeed. you know, the field bowsers, the, the workshops, the transport trucks and uh, you know, wagons for the Germans. Yeah, exactly. And that's where air power excelled. But his, his point was that, you know, troops were at first were really heartened when they saw uh, aircraft like their aircraft until totalized and um, attractable when they tried using strategic bombers, which unfortunately, you know, tended to blow up Canadian and Polish formations. You know, there were hundreds yeah, of casualties. Fire the, ain't. <laughs> yeah, there were hundreds of casualties on the start lines of those two operations. And it made uh, it made tactical and brigade commanders really reluctant to ask for air support. They would much rather ask for artillery support. And no, they, were, they were still using using um, st like strategic bombers at the start, like even in the Rhineland battles. Yeah, yeah. I don't know if they got any better at it, but for a while in Normandy, for a while in Normandy, they really were reconsidering the value of them. And it wasn't until the breakout into uh, fillets that they started to see what air power had actually been doing, right? You see these long columns of burnt out vehicles and dead German troops and horses and the troops actually realized, yeah, the RAF was really good. So that was a great interview. And it was also really interesting to hear just how many Canadian airmen were killed in the, the Normandy uh, campaign, you know, like several hundred. Uh, we, we don't think about the three, we think about the 380 or so that were killed on the beaches on the first day, but you know, there were a lot of air casualties just leading up to uh, Normandy. So that was my Canadian content contribution. I'm also happy to report that I'm um, busy painting my 15 millimeter battlefront mid-war Canadians for Italy. So they're almost done so that I'm going to have to turn to some Germans. Yay. Yeah. Yay. So, yeah. So what do you, what, uh, James, what are you working on in the way of Canadian stuff? Anything? Or are you still mired in the Napoleonic period? I'm, I'm still deep elbow deep into the napoleonics um another wave of bavarians are hitting the painting desk i had a refreshing game of sharp practice the other weekend just to uh, remind me of the point of it all you know I'm, I'm actually hope i i keep telling myself i've got to paint everything i buy Ooh. so you know i do kind of put that pressure on myself to 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 slog through all this stuff um crazy talk no, I, I, I know. I just years of oh, like years of responsible living, years of living poor. Yes, yeah. Don't want to don't want to waste the money, you know. And then when I I you know next year I say I'm going to go buy I don't know Conqueror models dwarves, which I've been telling myself I'm going to buy them for like the last five years. Um, but I think I'm, I think my Middle Earth might be coming back soon. Um, speaking of fantasy, did I see on your blog that you you had done some uh, Oathmark solo gaming, or was that an old old post? That was an old post that someone found and started asking me questions about. Oh, okay. So I, I yeah, they kind of got another little bump and probably some yeah. more of it and stuff. But yeah. yeah, I haven't had I haven't had Oathmark out since oh god over a year. It's got some neat ideas. 
I really should revisit it again. Well, when we get together at the uh, couple of weeks from now, which I'm really looking forward to, uh, we can either try that or we can try Dragon Rampant. But I think we should we should break out some of our fantasy figures. And, oh yeah, uh, my, son, my son John is quite interested in that, so we have to. I'll bring him along as a as a yeah one of my one of my sub captains. <laughs> yeah, or maybe you know I could just try to gang up on him. And, yeah, uh, we, we could do that too. We could yeah. do that too. What else did I want to say? Uh, I think we're really wrapping up. I just wanted to mention some uh, feedback. Uh, we got a comment on Facebook, I think from our second podcast that uh, a listener had enjoyed it, but then he felt that we sort of strayed into Brit bashing. And yeah. I, have, I have to say, James and I were sort of struggling to know what the gentleman meant exactly. Yeah, I mean, maybe when we were trying to, you know, wrestle with colonial history and its impact on First Nations people, which as Canadians, we're very sensitive about right now. Yeah. Um, maybe that's what he's talking about. That yeah, possibly. Uh, I listened to the episode and I didn't, I didn't uh, come away with that, that impression myself. But that doesn't mean that I, uh, uh, I didn't hear it. I, I just don't remember hearing anything like that. Yeah. Well, thanks, Don. I mean, I, it's possible that the, what the gentleman heard was maybe a, a flippant comment of mine about how we didn't want English accents on the show, which really was just a bad joke because, you know, uh, we'll talk to anybody. We have friends with English accents. But I think our point was that we just wanted to provide a space for, um, you know, Canadians, even if they live in Las Vegas, to talk about the hobby <laughs> from a Canadian perspective. Right. So we certainly didn't want to offend any of our British uh, uh, British friends. Um, I, I got a very kind comment from a, a Twitter follower called Tita Villas, who's a chap in Ottawa, who said, on the other hand, he really, really appreciated the fact that we used the word indigenous uh, Canadians when we were talking about uh, with Bob and we talked about um, the Lancel Meadows sort of period of Canadian history when Vikings versus indigenous Canadians would have faced off. And he said he really, you know, said, yeah, I, I you know, you guys aren't trying to be super woke or anything, but he, he really did appreciate the sensitivity with which we kind of recognize the fact that there were original people in Canada and they weren't called Indians. They were first nations or whatever. So anyway, so, you know, uh, you can't please everybody, but it's nice that we please some people and we really, really appreciate your comments. So folks, if you are hearing this podcast and you want to say something to us, we, we would just love to hear from you and however you hear from it. And, and, and I'm, you know, we're like, I'm saying, I'm talking about things. I don't have notes. I don't have my books to refer to. Sometimes I remember things wrong. Sometimes I make a sweeping comment, which yes, should be refined and clarified. If you think I'm being an ass, by all means say so, or stop listening. I don't care. I'll keep listening. <laughs> I think you're, I think you're, I think you're an ass, but I'll keep listening. You know, I yeah. We're trying, trying not to be dicks to anybody, but if you get offended, you know where the off button is. Well, that's true. Yeah, hopefully you won't use it. Um, oh, I have one parting thought before we play our, our final music in honor of our guest, Don. Um, Don, I, when I was uh, doing a graduate program at the Queen's Expense a couple of years ago, I, I got to know a chap called uh, Arthur Gullickson, G-U-L-L-A-C-H-S-E-N, who's was a Royal Canadian Regiment officer who got picked up to do a PhD in military history and now teaches at uh, RMC. So uh, nice work if you can get it. Yeah. But he wrote a book uh, His was based on his dissertation, which was about the role of tank repair workshops behind the lines in Normandy, uh, Canadian and German, and uh, the turnaround times involved in getting a, uh, 
a disabled or broken down uh, or knocked out tank back on the battlefield. And uh, it was an absolutely fascinating um, uh, topic. I, I have his book. It's called An Army of Something Strength, Unsurpassed Strength or something like that. But um, I got it through, through UBC Press. But I thought as a Remy guy, um, you might want to know about it. So I'll send you a reference Absolutely. to it. Yeah, yes, please. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's very much uh, of interest to me. Um, uh, in the semi-modern world of, of the Leopard 1, uh, which we used to refer to as the Panzer 7. <laughs> uh, you could change a power pack on a, on a Leopard 1 in 30 minutes, uh, which is a vast, uh, vast change from a King Tiger or a Panther tank. Right. And I think that came out of that experience uh, across, uh, across all the theaters that the Germans fought in, that, that they realized right. that uh, had they had that ability back then, they could have fielded a much more uh, reliable uh, tank army. Well, possibly, although the German mechanics were trying to swap out those engines at night uh, or, or under camouflage netting and hoping to God they wouldn't get uh, strafed. True. Well, if they could even recover the wrecks. Yeah, where's the rain? Yeah, well, it depended on who owned the battlefield at the end of the day, right? So, you know, the British and Canadians could lose, you know, 100 tanks in a day in an operation like Goodwood and be able to haul them off the battlefield and repair yeah, them. Yeah. 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 Like try and, try and recover a, a Tiger tank. Yeah. 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 Like it, it's not going to happen unless no. you've got another Tiger tank to haul it away. Yeah. Exactly. Or three famos. Yeah. So that's you know it's I, it's hard to know how you would recreate that on the on a on a tabletop, but it would be a, like a I think it would be an interesting uh, like I a, think it's an interesting uh, mental exercise, but it isn't a fun war game. No, unless yeah. you were doing a um, chain of command thing where you had to, you know, you had to protect a you had to extract a vehicle off the battlefield and you had an infantry section covering some Remy guys. I don't know, would that be fun? Or a Remy workshop? That's a possibility. Yeah, uh, yeah. an interesting. Or you, work, or you work it into your campaign. Yeah, that would be that would be interesting. I mean, we don't think about those things generally, but it would be fun. Well, Don, it's been absolutely grand having you as our guest. And uh, so our tradition is on the podcast to uh, play us out with a, a march past from uh, the Canadian military tradition. And in honor of your uh, cap badge, sir, here is our uh, here is our musical uh, finale. In my phase training, we were required to memorize the, the words of the first verse. So that we could sing along during uh, uh, mess dinners. Oh. Okay. In fact, we had to sing it to get out of the gas hut during uh, during the gas hut exercise. Yikes! And if you get it wrong, they they kept you in there, so we didn't get it wrong. Or you threw up. Well, we did that too, but you <laughs> <laughs> certainly didn't want to stay in the gas hut any longer than you had to. No. So, Don, thanks so much for being being uh, spending this time with us. It's been great. Thank you so much. Uh, this is. Uh, scratched an itch of mine because whenever i listen to the uh the podcast i'm constantly talking back to you guys and you can't hear me <laughs> this time you can actually hear me so that well, this is a this is a, a plus one experience for me right hopefully, into the comments. yeah hopefully we listened okay here's the uh, here's the music that'll play us